Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. I uh, want to welcome to episode 31 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. This is going to be a, a little bit of a different sort of a thing for uh, this program. Uh, we're not going to be talking about a DC comic today. We're actually not even going to be talking about a comic, actually. We're not going to be, you know, reviewing or synopsizing a comic the way we usually do here. Instead, uh, I wanted to yeah, do something a little bit different. I wanted to revisit a piece of writing uh, of my own from uh, back, boy, probably seven, eight years now. Um, this is early in my... Uh, undergrad uh, when I returned to school and uh, it shows <laughs> I want to warn you all up front this isn't the best piece of writing in the world but uh, it, it facilitates some storytelling and uh, and, and I was I was uh, kind of interested to come across this on a thumb drive just the other day and uh, it was just a you know one of those things that just brings you back to uh, where you were and the, the weird thoughts that were in your head and uh, all the things you were experiencing when you were writing something, um, or taking a particular class, or just going through a particular you know phase in life, and uh, this class that I was taking, uh, we've talked time and again about uh, you know the 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 travels, the trials, the tribulations of an undergrad, uh, especially an undergrad who's going through community college. How your paths can change without notice. Um, how some classes you're taking are suddenly no longer on your path, and some classes that you didn't take are now on your path, and just how wacky and nebulous and uh, seemingly never-ending the uh, the travel through uh, community college can be for some people. Very early on in my uh, time back, uh, I got a message about this whole like new slate of humanities courses that was added to... Uh, that was just added to the school, kind of, you know, it was just something we could choose. And, and you do need humanities in order to, I guess, make yourself a well-rounded student, which I could see that being wonderfully helpful if you're, uh, you know, fresh out of high school, you're 17, 18 years old, you're still trying to figure uh, things out. Um, but when you're, you know, when you're in your early 30s and you return to school, the idea of wasting not only the time, but the money and the effort on uh, just these odd humanities courses that have nothing to do with your chosen career path or your ultimate end goal, they feel just, uh, you know, they feel a little bit useless. They feel like a complete waste. And uh, y y you try to pick the easy ones, I think. Uh, at least I did. I tried picking the ones that I knew that I wouldn't have to really invest a whole lot of time into. Um, because I knew the path I was, you know, on, and I didn't want to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul, and uh, maybe do, give less attention to the actual important classes and pay more attention to, you know, some art history class that, sure, people might love art history, and some, some fields may require it, but mine didn't. I just needed a humanities course, and it was something I thought might be kind of easy. So on this uh, email I got about these new humanities courses that were added to the slate, one of them was an English humanities, uh, an American literature class with a focus on comic books. So this is, you know, American comic books. So no Alan Moore, no uh, Grant Morrison, none of the none of the writers that you would uh, v maybe view, uh, you know, superficially as the ones that are have like academic credibility no neil gaiman you know this was uh 
all American writers, which I think uh, the professor uh, <laughs> kind of had a problem with. I think she really wanted to talk more about some of the uh, some of the British writers, uh, some of the European writers, but. I think they were trying to make the class into like a two-parter where there would be like a an American side and an international side So there'd be two classes. I don't know if they actually ever went through with the second one, but uh, There was this one class. So it was an American history American literature class with a focus on comic books And I was just like nah, I can't take that. You know, I was I thought I was a little too close to the material and uh you know, I, I like to think that everybody has, like, one thing they're really good at or one thing they're really knowledgeable on, something that they're an expert in. And uh, for me, I always viewed that as, as being the comics. And here I was faced with an actual metric. You know, some somebody was going to grade me <laughs> on what I knew about comic books. And uh, the idea of finding out I'm... Not quite the expert on the one thing that I saw myself as an expert in. Uh, that kind of that kind of freaked me out. So I, I was instinctively just like, nah, I'm not gonna take that. You know, I'm, it's cool that they have it, but it's definitely not something I'm going to take. But you know, the humanities gods uh, they require sacrifice sometimes, and here I go. I, I decided, okay, you know, I'll take it. Uh, it it was funny because. You know, you look at a syllabus for a class you're thinking about taking, and you see all the textbooks, you know, you see what the required reading is. And this list featured a whole bunch of stuff that I'd already had, so it was going to be, you know, even less expensive to take. And then the few things that I didn't have, uh, it, it was easy to get those on Amazon for, you know, for a deep discount. So it wasn't like I was buying a textbook or renting a textbook. It was just like, okay, well, i got to pick up, you know, Ghost World, or i got to pick up La Perdita or something like that. And I tell you, that was like the only time I was ever kind of excited to get my, you know, quote, textbooks. So it was pretty cool in that regard. But uh, the class overall was uh, pretty good, you know. Um, I didn't learn a whole lot that I didn't already know, but I could see how this would be beneficial for people who were, you know, kind of on the fringes um, of the understanding of comics language or even just comic storytelling uh, it covered a lot of those beats um so if if you were new to the uh to the field to the medium i could definitely see getting a whole lot out of this um i do recall that we started with a very <laughs> very brief look at the uh, formation of the comics code which uh you know you think about how people sometimes talk about college as like an indoctrination camp sort of a situation where you're just learning uh, what a professor or what a uh, what an education board wants you to learn and we, we covered this uh, the comics code you know and never once did the name uh, Estes Kefauver come up uh, <laughs> there were no mentions of the Senate hearing in as far as what it actually was. It was all, you know, hand-wringing and pumping fists about, oh, that damn Wortham, you know, that guy was just out to get everybody. And uh, it, it really, and I didn't know who Kefauver was at the time, so I didn't even under, I didn't even realize what a disservice this uh, this lesson was because it was all, you know, the, the pop the pop ed, you know, uh, Frederick Wortham is the devil, you know, put some horns in a forked tail on him. And it's a, uh, it's funny when you actually do the digging and you do the research and you find out just, uh, 
just what else went into the entire formation of the Comics Code. Uh, we, we do have a, a very long uh, <laughs> run of episodes based on the Comics Code. It's uh, Weird Comics History issue episodes 1 through 5. Uh, I think it's about 8 or 9 hours we go into everything. We cover a whole lot of stuff, uh, even some of Dr. Wortham's good points. So uh, if you haven't heard that yet, uh, definitely if you have a, a free day, <laughs> give, it a, give it a listen. It's a, it's a pretty good time. Some of the other stuff we took a look at, uh, we compared Superman to a lot of the Superman knockoffs at the time, like Atom Man. Um, didn't really go into Fawcett or Captain Marvel or anything, but because uh, I, I think uh, Atom Man and a lot of the knockoffs from, you know, right after Superman hit, uh, hit big uh, are, are public domain. So they're easy to get a hold of and they're easy to use for academic purposes and and they're actually a lot easier to compare and contrast because you can see how a character like Adam Man is very, you know, kind of embedded in the time where he was made. Where Superman kind of, he kind of breaks out of one, you know, point in time. He kind of transcends uh, being pigeonholed into, okay, this is a guy from 1938. He's now, he's just a guy for all times, you know, he's... He's a Superman for all seasons, if you will, where Adam Man, he's kind of just stuck where he was. Uh, Frank Miller's Batman kind of loomed large over this class. Uh, I guess when you when you can't do Alan Moore and you, and you can't do Neil Gaiman, I, I think you just, uh, Frank Miller's where you go. You know, you can talk about uh, Year One, you can talk about Dark Knight Returns. Uh, I had to talk about Year One, I had to write about it uh, quite a bit. And it was funny, I got a I got a reply back from the professor saying that I used a term uh, that none of her students have ever used before and that she wasn't wholly familiar with, and that term was post-crisis, uh, which really tells you just the kind of bubble that comics fans are in because with me, it's like post-crisis, pre-crisis, that's all just like common language now when you talk about specific points in time for uh, DC characters where writing that in an academic piece it's like well what does that even mean especially when you're with uh with students who don't you know they're not following comics they picked up the three or four trades they had to pick up for the class and they don't know where year one falls is this was there a crisis a few years ago and if so what does that matter because you know at the end of the day it really doesn't to anybody who's not in the bubble like uh like I am, and perhaps you are. So I thought that was pretty interesting uh, and very eye-opening, because uh, you you find out just how far up your own ass you are sometimes when you when you use these these common phrases to us uh, in I don't know mixed company or uh, to the indo- unindoctrinated, you know, so they don't really have the foggiest idea what the significance of what we're talking about is, and they were uh, really really big on Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud was uh, another uh, another thing that loomed large over this class because of, uh, well, his book, Understanding Comics. Uh, I figure if you're going to have a comics cl- course, comics class, uh, Understanding Comics has almost definitely got to be on the, uh, on the curriculum. You know, you need to have that in there. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the way... We were introduced to Scott McCloud, though, and I, and I think he's a he's a wonderfully talented writer and a great artist. I think he's a very important part of you know the comics uh, field. 
but the way he was uh, portrayed during this class, it was almost like a fawning, just like bowing down to him because of uh, the way he, you know, uh, he had the platform to say that he thought the comics were going to go digital, which to me, I think that was obvious to just about everybody. It's just that he had the platform to say it. So it's kind of like akin to looking out your window, seeing, you know, storm clouds gathering and then going door to door saying, hey, it's going to rain soon. You know, this isn't you telling the future. This is you just pointing out something that's coming because it's obvious. I mean, just as soon as there was a web, there were web comics. You know, it stands to reason that everything, everything that's tangible and, you know, hard paper will eventually become a page on the internet. And uh, it, it was funny just the way the conversation would go. The, he was almost deified in that class as this, you know, as the only caveman who knew how to read. And uh, I think that just uh, really uh, shines kind of a, a lackluster light on the industry as a whole and portrays everybody who isn't him as a backwards-thinking uh Goofballs, you know, I, I am not a fan of digital media, but I do understand that it's the reality So I'll take the caveman title, but I, I do know how to read the hieroglyphs and the uh, and the etchings on the wall So it's just I choose not to do the digital, but I don't know that kind of got under my skin just the way the, Just the way the the other students were talking about him, but again That's just me being in the bubble and being so far into you know into this where it's just it's a different thing to me where I can I could take McLeod's work and put it with anybody else's words and uh, You know foreseeing of the future and it's just another piece of the puzzle whereas in this class he was He was like the definitive, you know, the the all-seeing psychic who uh, Who made the call and uh, we all fell in line to uh, to bow so it's just a little interesting thing. Another another thing about being in the bubble and taking a class about something that you're not in the bubble of, which kind of kind of intrigued me. You know, one more thing before we get into the you know the actual meat of this uh, episode, if uh, if you will, uh, we had guest speakers, a couple of uh, PhDs from somewhere on the East Coast. I think it was like Vermont or New Hampshire or something. They were uh, brought in for like a webinar sort of a thing where. They were talking about uh, diversity, diversity in comics, and that's a big thing these days. This was this was before you know the big push. This was back in like 2011 ish. So, you know, we didn't have uh, you know the Marvel uh, inserts. The uh, we didn't have Jane Foster Thor or the uh, the Sam Wilson Captain America. So this was before a lot of that started to fall into place. And uh, but it is you know still it's still a topic it's still a uh, re- relevant uh, thing to discuss, and I think it should be I think uh, definitely you know this is something to discuss. Uh, but the way that these uh, these fellas did it was, uh, and again this is me uh, in the bubble and me, uh, and I, I don't want to talk like I'm some sort of an expert here because uh, d- despite everything I said to begin this episode I'm you know at this. Yeah, I learn stuff every single day, you know, we all do. But the thing that really stood out to me, because it was, it was a fine lecture, until they got to this one part, and uh, they were introducing uh, White Tiger, the Marvel character from the Bronze Age. He's a uh, Hispanic superhero, one of the first, if not the first, uh, to get, in the mainstream anyway. 
and they just they introduced him with this like overall uh, disregard and this dismissive kind of snarky nature to it, where they they weren't interested in the character so much, but they wanted to discuss and mock his trappings. You know, because they have him, there's a scene where he's in his apartment, or he's in his mother's apartment, and there are, like, velvet Jesus paintings, and uh, there's, you know, a lot of a lot of religious iconography and cultural iconography, and a lot of what they were saying, how they received it was, you know, like, oh, this is a Marvel shorthand for this is a Hispanic, or this is a Latino, and... Uh, and one of them, which, you know, that's fine to say, because it, it, it kind of is, you know, it's, this is just, these are stereotypical things that, uh, you know, that, that, it's shorthand, it's, 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 it could be looked at as lazy, it could look, be looked at as just, uh, the easy way to do things, but, uh, then one of them said, uh, they said, it's like they've never been in a Latino person's house before, this is what, this is what people imagine a Latino house to look like, but none of them do. And uh, and I'm thinking, hmm, you know, I uh, I married into a large Mexican family, and I've been into many Latino homes, and uh, and this is anecdotal. This is just me. This is not a a way of uh, saying that all things are the same across the board. But many, if not all, of those homes looked a lot like White Tiger's apartment or his mom's apartment or wherever the wherever the scene was taking place, and. Uh, I just found it very disingenuous for these guys to put this down in such a way. And and it's it's picking nits, to be sure. But uh, I have a problem with, like, drive-by statements, drive-by comments. The, the comments, the little snarky little needles you, you dig into people where you don't expect a response, you know. And uh, because a response isn't really even worth the time. Because it is just a drive-by statement. But, uh... That one got under my skin because these guys are purported as experts and, uh... They're there. They are here to educate us, and they're just they're just really putting down Marvel's attempt at relevancy back in the '70s. And I'm not usually inspired to engage, but this time I was because these these are guys who are responsible for educating us. And I just uh, you know I sent them a, a missive and uh, included the professor on it, just saying you know my, giving my anecdotal take on their statement and how. You know, it is comic shorthand, to be sure, but uh, you shouldn't dismiss it as being wholly, you know, unrealistic. Because, at least anecdotally, it's realistic. It's something that exists, and uh, it really shows their ignorance um, and lack of worldliness and lack of appreciation of diversity to uh, dismiss that and just plainly state that that's not something that exists. And then I threw in some contextual things about how, you know, it's... Marvel at the end of the day is as much as we want to pretend that you know the Marvel and DC are art first, uh, they're business first, and uh, with every risk you take, you risk alienating readership. And, and you could make the argument that you know if someone's going to stop reading because you introduce a Latino character, you don't want that person reading your stuff anyway. And I agree with that. But at the same time, you know you've got bean counters to uh, to appease, and you've got. Uh, You've got people who you answer to, and they have people that they answer to that they all they care about is seeing if the number at the end of the line is is black or red. You know, uh, are we making money or are we losing money? And uh, 
because everybody's money is green, so they don't care who's buying the stuff. It's just as long as people are buying the stuff, they're all good. So anytime you do something like that, you take a risk, and you risk losing readership. Uh, of course, there are potential for gains, but it was a different time. You know, this is back in the in the 70s. It was a very different time uh, for, for comics, for media in general, and for portrayals. So I just thought that... You know, that's something that should be kept in mind when you uh, when you dismiss things like that, because, you know, the whole thing's an evolution and it's still evolving to even to this day. So I think contextually, you need to have an appreciation for what it meant for for Marvel or DC to introduce a character that their, their readership might not accept, especially in a time where, you know, there was no social media, there was no. Uh, your relationship with a comics company was, you know, at the newsstand. If you were going to hand them, you know, your quarter, you know, and they were going to hand you a book, and that was the end of it. And you might write a letter, but, I mean, what are the odds anybody's going to read it, respond to it, care, either way? So it was just a very different time. We can't really change the past. All we could do is learn from it, and I think that's uh, that's what we're doing. You know, that's what we, we try to do uh, all the time. We I think... Uh, you know, you, you can think about what intentions are. Uh, I like to think that we've all got the best intentions, but you just can never say with a hundred percent certainty. So, it is what it is. I, I never got a reply from these guys, unsurprisingly, um, and I've never listened to another one of their lectures. So I don't know if they made any kind of changes. I, I suspect they did not because uh, they uh, their whole thing was kind of they're trying to be kind of like stand up comics in a way, and I think. Uh, uh, presenting things rationally sounding is uh, probably not to their benefit when they're trying to evoke laughs and uh, you know talk about how how old-fashioned comics were and how out of touch they were. But you know, it's just another one of those is what it is sort of things. I just didn't appreciate it as they came in to educate people who aren't in the comics bubble. You know, these are just folks who have a passing interest, or it's just a humanities course that they thought, hey, comic books, that's going to be easy, you know, and uh, and that's uh, the reason they signed up, but I don't know, maybe I'm a little too sensitive, that's always a possibility as well, but, you know, into what we're going to be talking about here is uh, the midterm, we had a midterm and we were supposed to choose, uh, we were supposed to choose a, a an adaptation, um, we had to read something and watch the adaptation, and if you've been following along, you know that I do not watch comic book movies. Uh, generally speaking, I, I've always shied away from viewing and uh, trying to engage with adaptations from uh, you know comic source material. But this was an assignment, and I had to do it, and I had to pick a uh, a book and a uh, a film, and I chose Ghost World because it was a it was a book that I'd wanted to read for a very long time. And uh, even back when I wasn't, you know, creating content, I still came. I still had trouble doing it. I still had trouble making the time to fit it in. But I was interested, and I figured uh, watching the film would be kind of unlike watching a superhero film because, uh, well, there are no superheroes in this. So I figured that'd be the least of all evils for me, and especially since I was interested in the source material. I like Daniel Close. I, I thought I, I think he's great. So I thought I'd do this, I'd do an adapt, I'd, I'd read Ghost World, I'd watch the film, and uh, 
I would do a compare and contrast. And this entire project stemmed from a piece written by, and I'm going to butcher this, hopefully not, uh, Pascal Lafavre. Um, he wrote something called uh, The Problematic Adaptation of Drawn Images. It was a, a comparison. It's called Incompatible Visual Ontologies, where he compares, uh, or he, he addresses the challenges in uh, adapting comics to any other medium, uh, pre predominantly film, because, I mean, what else are you going to really adapt them to? But he has four problems in the adaptations of comics into films. And uh, a lot of the paper that I wrote is kind of uh, predicated in those, uh, those four problems. And he lists them. I'll, I'll read you a little snippet from, uh, from the book here. And I'll try to include a snippet of this uh, maybe on the blog. He says, uh, there are four main problems in the adaptation of comics into film, and three of them are related to the characteristics of the comic book medium itself. Panels are arranged on a page. Panels are static drawings, and a comic does not make noise or sound. Film is quite different. First, there's a screen frame. Second, the film images are moving and photographic. Third, film has a soundtrack. These characteristic differences of the two media become enacted as the four adaptation problems of 1. The deletion addition process that occurs with rewriting primary comics text for film. 2. The unique characteristics of page layout and film screen. And 3. The dilemmas of translating drawings to photography. And 4. The importance of sound in film compared to the silence of comics. Given these problems, perhaps the central question about filmic adaptation of comics is not how faithful slash respectful to the comic the film will be, but rather how least dissimilar to the comic the film can be. And I, I love that line because it goes into this uh, endeavor with the understanding that there will be differences. And uh, something I'm trying to come to grips with personally right now is accepting those differences uh, from adaptation to source material. I'm trying to broaden my horizons a little bit. We have a, a project cooking right now where I'm going to be subjecting myself to some comics films and uh, kind of just get my feet wet and uh, see if I can appreciate them for what they are and not for what they're not, you know, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, my main kind of mental block on uh, checking out the comic films is kind of the one-way street they've become uh, in as far as uh, the mainstream's concerned. You know, I, I see people who read comics, they will go to the films, and they will accept them as other takes on on something that they hold dear, you know, or something that they are familiar with. Whereas people who see the films very, very seldom come to the comics. And uh, generally speaking, I feel like they dismiss the comics as just not mattering because that's not the real story. The real story's on the screen, you know? Where I, I think that it's uh, become like a one-way street where they don't, the people who come from the film don't have to uh, respect the source material, but we comic readers have to respect the, the movies. You know, it, it's it's weird. It's a it's a weird sticking point in my head. It's uh, probably just another case of me thinking a little too hard about it. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into my piece called A Tale of Two Enids. And again, I do apologize that this is very early in my return to academic writing, so it may come across as a high school paper rather than that of a 
30-something-year-old college student. But <laughs> And I'd like to think that I've improved since here, but uh, I guess we'll find out. Uh, let's go right now. In adapting from print to film, it is often necessary to take liberties with the source material in order to tell a similarly effective story which best utilizes the benefits of the new media. In certain situations, the new media of film affords a creator opportunity to reimagine the source material in ways that would otherwise not have been possible or as effective in its execution, taking into account not only the challenges involved, but the potential to build upon the original work in crafting an adaptation from comic book to film. It is apparent that much care went into the creation of the retelling of Ghost World. Daniel Close's comic book work, Ghost World, was adapted into a major motion picture in 2001. This film was penned by the original author, lending credibility to the adaptation while providing the audience a glimpse of a somewhat altered, yet still true, version of the events from the source material. Due to the episodic nature of the original work, having been released serially in the comic book series 8-Ball, the film adaptation required integration of a more full-bodied narrative. Thematically, the film and comic book are rather similar. The focus of both is a girl, Enid's, experienced during the final summer of her adolescence. However, the ways in which Enid spends that post-graduation summer are portrayed quite differently. Taking Pascal Lefebvre's adaptation problems into account, as documented in his article, Incompatible Visual Ontologies, in the book, Film and Comic Books, this adaptation faced them all. However, meeting one of those challenges was most pivotal in the edition process. This key challenge is predicated on the capabilities of film insofar as integration of sound. The luxury of a soundtrack afforded Klaus the to include a far-reaching subplot regarding music appreciation. Music played an important role in this story, and while the comic book does make brief mention of a record Enid owned as a child, it is only significant for its lyrics. The lyrics serve to frame a later scene and potentially speak to Enid's loss of innocence and underscore the end of her childhood. In the film, the characters and audience alike are able to appreciate the oral qualities of Seymour and Enid's favorite kinds of music. As this aided in strengthening the relationship between Enid and Seymour, it became a vital piece of the work. This also grants the viewer or listener real access into both Enid's states of mind and Seymour's passion, helping to make them into more well-rounded and relatable characters. The further addition of the subplot of the summer school art class was also facilitated with the adaptation. While not impossible or even difficult to depict an art class in sequential art format, the move to film was beneficial in gaining the ability to not only show the creative pieces of art, but layer also layering quick conversational discourse in the fore. Tone of voice and body language was also paramount in many of the art class scenes. Enid's classmate, who fancied herself the teacher's pet, displayed her non-genuine affinity for the course through alternating tones of confidence and parroting what the teacher had said when describing her work. The repeated talking heads is better suited to the moving film than to the static comic page where it may become tedious and uninviting to a reader. The deletion-slash-edition process and the adaptation of Ghost World is vital in, it, in its becoming an actual narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. The comic book provided a reader with only brief glimpses into the everyday lives of Enid and Rebecca. For the most part, the order in which the chapters are read is not terribly important. This is one of the strengths of the original work, as it speaks to the nature of how the days of youth can and often do blend into one another, and how one can almost lose track of their succession. In crafting the adaptation, Close chronicled Enid's relationship with prank victim Seymour, leaving Rebecca almost relegated to being a minor character. 
Seymour, as written, is something of a kindred spirit to Enid. His character is stilted, as though he never actually graduated into proper adulthood. He is so preoccupied with his hobby, collection, and his own timidities that he neglects putting any real effort into advancing his personal life in a productive way. Enid's initial attraction to him speaks a great deal in regards to her own immaturity. When first introduced to Seymour's vaunted record room, instead of seeing the treasures of an obsessive collector as, a, as an adult may see, Enid absolutely fawns over it, insisting that Seymour must be the luckiest person she knows. Rebecca, instead of being the underachieving friend who feared Enid would one day abandon her, was portrayed as something of a go-getter. Rebecca's, Rebecca's adaptation variation is goal-oriented and spends nearly the entirety of the film working toward achievement. It is Enid who fears abandonment in the film. Further, it is the character of Enid who is the most fleshed out in the film adaptation. In the comic book, Enid came across as something of a juvenile delinquent who appeared cruel and enjoyed being a burden on those around her. In the film, however, Enid was much more complex and an almost broken character. Throughout the film, she endeavors to be needed by those around her, whether it be Seymour as a confidant or Rebecca as a roommate. When confronted with fulfilling those needs, however, Enid seemingly withdraws. This speaks to her internal conflict insofar as her current stage in life being somewhere between that of a child and an adult. Being needed may potentially be Enid's way of finding her place in the world. As a high school graduate, summer school art class notwithstanding, much of the structure in her life is now gone. Her home life is also upturned upon the potential return of a hated former stepmother. Her primary peer is set on seeking independence and entering adulthood, and after helping Seymour find the courage to contact a prospective girlfriend, he begins to grow distant. Further, as those closest to her continually become more self-sufficient, Seymour by enduring a somewhat healthy romantic relationship, and Rebecca maintaining employment and continuing on to her goal of moving out on her own, Enid actively attempts to rein them back into needing her. She manipulates her way into gaining their trust and dependence, only to let them down once more. These character traits may speak to the film's need for a wider audience than a comic book. While the Enid character in the comic book was recognizable as an unsocial teenager, the film's version was relatable and identifiable as a person stuck between two phases of life, both weary of being a child and at the same time too scared to truly become an adult. The adaptation's Enid is a much more sympathetic character, which is important as she is the de facto protagonist of the film. Furthering the notion that comic books are essentially targeted to a different audience than theatrical releases, Ghost World, as written, was a one-man production, wherein Daniel Close had complete control over every word written and every line drawn. In an effort to make this story engaging to a broader audience, some of the original work's edge had to be softened. Enid was far less cruel and would show remorse from time to time. The adaptation was strikingly normal in comparison to the original work. This also appears to be the case when it came to casting. While the characters in Clo's comic book were not portrayed as especially ugly, they were also not drawn to be exceedingly attractive. The choices for casting were questionable insofar as their aesthetic value. The main players, though recognizable from the original work, appear to have been given something of a facelift. The younger cast notwithstanding, the character of Seymour, portrayed by Steve Buscemi, did look distinctly like a Daniel Close character brought to life. Overall, the reworking of Ghost World from comic book to film was successful in my opinion. The adaptation, though story-wise, was quite different from the source material, had the overall theme and spirit of the comic book present throughout. The two versions make fine companion pieces in examining the post-high school summer of Enid and those around her. 
While the paths were divergent, the stories found themselves ending similarly ambiguous. Enid leaving town may be symbolic of various ends, or it can simply be her taking the much-needed step into adulthood. Perhaps knowing that her place is no longer the town she grew up in, Enid faces the challenge she had been avoiding for the duration of the study. The challenge of change. So yeah, riveting stuff there, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> my old academic writing here. Uh, just uh, came across it on a thumb drive and thought it would be kind of neat to share. Uh, I, I hope you, you all enjoyed that, or at least, uh, I don't know, tolerated it, I suppose. But I think this uh, might, you know, bring a little bit of a dialogue up that I don't usually talk about. I, I as mentioned, I generally dismiss the films, and uh, I want to, you know, better myself. I want to broaden <laughs> my horizons and be less of a cranky old man than I've uh, become before before my time. And uh, I want to invite invite some uh, discourse, just some discussion about uh, some of your favorite adaptations, some problems you might have with adaptations. Uh, some adaptations you might actually enjoy better um, than the source material when it when it comes from you know a comic uh, series or a comic special. Um, this uh, Ghost World has become one of my uh, go-to's. I, it's one that I really enjoy. It's one that I can read through pretty quickly. It's a it's a pretty breezy read, um, and it's actually one that I've wanted to do a treadmill on for quite some time, like a full treadmill where we go deep into uh, Daniel Close's history and. Uh, and go through the entirety of the story. Um, I was hoping to actually make it a two-parter because I remembered that I did this uh, assignment back in the day, and I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to do like a compare and contrast on the air. I wanted to do go through the the entire book and then uh, maybe analyze the film afterwards and do a little bit a com- little bit of comparing and contrasting uh, with Reggie about you know what worked, what uh, what worked better, what didn't work quite as well uh, because they are. You know, very, very different. Uh, if you've seen the movie and not watched the film, uh, it might be surprising to you that the Steve Buscemi character, like, he only shows up for, like, a panel or two in the comic. He's not a main character. He's not uh, He's not really part of uh, Enid's life uh, so much. He's he's basically just a prank victim, you know, and he, he comes and he goes, and that's it. Uh, it was only in the film that he gets this full, you know, more full-bodied character to him, and uh, it's a very interesting uh, offshoot. Because uh, I mean, it could have happened in the comic; it's just not a story we were told. You know, it doesn't really contradict anything, but uh, you know, the character motivations from there are kind of disparate. Uh, you know, Rebecca in the comic is kind of a slacker, just like Enid, maybe even worse. But in the movie, she's you know, she's taking any job she can get so she can get her own apartment. And uh, the whole time, Enid's kind of, you know, nervous that she's going to be left in the dust. It's a... I don't know, it's just... It's one of those that really speaks to you. If you were ever stuck in that uh, that phase of life between adult and childhood, if you didn't make the transition, you know, as easy as some people, as some people do, uh, I think you'll find a lot to relate to. With Ghost World, both versions of Ghost World uh, Really can't recommend it enough um, But I think that's probably all I've got to say about it for now uh, Because I don't want to go too deep Or any deeper than I already have Because I do want to turn this into a full-bodied cosmic treadmill Somewhere down the line But uh, again, if you have any uh, comments about Ghost World The film or the movie uh, the, the film or the movie The film or the book uh, <laughs> Or if you have any uh 
any discourse about uh, you know the adaptation of film, uh, the adaptation of comics into film. I, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I think it'd be a nice discussion, something we can follow up on down the line. Uh, you could reach us at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can check out the site at chrisandreggie.com. You can check out my site at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, Reggie Reggie, and Ace Comics. I want to thank you so, so much for hanging out on this weird day with this uh, not DC, not Marvel book. I hope you enjoyed it uh, for what it was, and uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.